Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for the show. We're recording on Friday, December 9th, 2022. We are continuing to do some looking back at the year that was here in New York politics and policy, and certainly looking ahead to 2023 in New York politics and policy. And as we wrap up uh, looking at the 2022 elections, although they'll be they'll be lingering for a while, uh, and looking ahead to 2023, we're also returning a bit. We've been so focused on state level, federal level elections, policy, of course, because of the election year of 2022. But we're starting to really refocus a bit here on the show and at GothamGazette.com and our reporting on what's happening in New York City government and New York City politics. And so uh, this episode of the show continues that. My guest on this episode of the show will be New York City Council Member Shaker Krishnan, who represents District 25 in Queens, that includes Jackson Heights and Elmhurst, two of the most diverse, growing, interesting areas of the city. Uh, he is the first Indian American ever elected to the New York City Council, and Councilmember Krishnan is also the chair of the Council's Committee on Parks and Recreation, and that's where we're going to have a lot of our focus here today. He has been now in the City Council almost one year after winning election in 2021 to the Council, so checking in on his work for the first almost year here, and then what's ahead in 2023. Along with Parks, he's been focused on uh, protections for uh, taxi drivers and medallion owners, for public hospital resources, uh, housing, uh, criminal justice reform, and of course, things related to parks and public space and much more. That includes the 34th Avenue Open Street, which is uh, dozens of, of blocks of pedestrian space uh, that has become a bit of, of a model for the city uh, and much more. So we'll talk with City Council Member Shaker Krishnan in just one moment. First, very quickly, if you missed any recent episodes of the show, find them after this one uh, at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or at the Gotham Gazette site. I've been having a series of interesting conversations with a bunch of great guests. We've been focused certainly in recent weeks on recapping and analyzing and dissecting the 2022 elections for governor, for state legislature, for U.S. House, and so on. I've had a few different Democratic political consultants who've given their various perspectives on what has happened. Republican City Council Minority Leader Joe Borelli, who was a big booster of Lee Zeldin's gubernatorial campaign, was on the show to give the Republican perspective on why Republicans had a better than expected election here in New York. Most recently here on the show, the last couple of episodes before this one, uh, we've had a Queens theme because uh, uh, we spoke with Democratic uh, Assemblymember Ron Kim of Queens talking about what is happening around Asian American voters in the city and this recent trend of Asian voters moving from Democrats to Republicans Assemblymember Kim of Queens, his district based in Flushing, had a lot of interesting thoughts there. And then most recently before this one, Queensboro President Donovan Richards talking about what he's been working on for the borough of Queens and a lot about what's ahead in 2023 with some very interesting previews of, of some announcements and some uh, developments in Queens. So check any of those out or all of them after you listen to this discussion here with City Council Member Krishna, because uh, a lot a lot of Queens action here on the show, but also much more and fitting, of course, uh, 
as I grew up in Queens and Whitestone and Flushing. So uh, happy to have a, a string of Queens episodes here on the show. So find those uh, at Max Politics, wherever you get podcasts or the Gotham Gazette site. And you can, of course, at GothamGazette.com. Even more importantly, perhaps find all of our original reporting. We've been covering lots of New York politics and policy, including a lot recently on housing issues, which are shaping up to possibly be the number one policy topic uh, that leaders are looking at here as we wrap up 2022 and go into 2023. Very high on the mayor's agenda, very high on the governor's agenda and so forth. All right. City Council Member Shaker Krishnan, thank you for being here. Hello. How are you? How's everything? Good. Thanks so much for having me on, Ben. I'm very proud and happy to hear such Queen's representation on your show. Expected no less. <laughs> it's <is> the future. <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't plan it this way, but it's worked out nicely. So we have a nice continuity with Assemblymember Kim, Borough President Richards, and yourself. Right. Um, say a little bit more. You know, you've been, uh, I, I gave a very brief introduction of you there. Um before coming into the council, one or two things you want people to know about your background, things you worked on, type of work you did, because, you know, obviously so many new council members coming into office this year after winning election last year, uh, a real uh, just enormously diverse group with lots of different professional experiences before coming into office. Uh, what are a couple of things people should know about your background before we dig into your council work here? Sure. Uh, well, before running for office, and I think it's one of the topics that you just touched on as well, but you know, I was a civil rights lawyer for many years, uh, fighting against housing discrimination, representing low-income tenants um, uh, in the fight against displacement um, and uh, uh, evictions. Um, and, you know, it's that work and being a longtime activist in Jackson Heights and Elmhurst, Queens, um, that motivated me to run for, for office. You know, I would always say when I was out there campaigning that, you know, I was running because I understand how important it is for everyone to have a home. And as I'm sure we'll talk about where you live affects everything else around you, um, including the um, access or frankly, the lack of access um, that you have to resources and services uh, that your community desperately needs. Um, that's the perspective I take with me now representing uh, my communities in the city council um, and as the chair of the Committee on Parks and Recreation. Uh, you know, Jackson Heights and Elmhurst are two of the most diverse immigrant communities on the planet. Um, and we are also a community of essential workers. Um, and we were also the epicenter of the epicenter of the pandemic. Um, and have some of the least amount of park space in New York City. And so those are the things on my mind um, in representing our communities. Um, and as you point out, I'm proud to be the first Indian American ever elected to city government in, in New York City's history before. Yeah. And and a remarkable number of, of among a, a remarkable number of firsts in this in this city council, including the sure. first female majority of the council and, and a number of other uh, firsts reflecting the diversity of the of the city, uh, more so than in than in past councils. So. Um, we'll, we'll dig into some issues and such first, but as you're, you know, nearing a, a year in the council, what's been, you know, one or two of the biggest, uh, you know, transitions that you've had to make or, or lessons that you've learned here about being, being an elected official, you know, anything you're reflecting on as you, as you get close to a year in office here about that transition to becoming an elected official representative for your communities. Also, obviously needing to, you know, continue to branch out and learn about other 
you know, constituencies, even within your district. But then, you know, as as chair of the parks uh, committee, of course, you're you're going around the city learning about other communities. Um, what's the learning? What's the learning curve been like? Sure. Well, I, I'd say a few different things, both things that have been affirmed to me and and, and new things that I'm that I'm seeing as well. Um, you know, I came in, as I said before, you know, from uh, as a uh, as civil rights lawyer, as part of the housing movement, with the view that ultimately what drives what needs to drive decision making in government is being first and foremost responsive and fighting for our communities whose voices want to be heard in city hall and city government. Um, and I've seen that carried over. You know, I fundamentally believe that, you know, my most important role is to make sure that I'm serving the 175,000 with such large immigrant communities too, uh, making sure that, you know, government is 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 providing services that are ling- language accessible, culturally accessible to them and making sure that I'm there walking the streets in the neighborhood, uh, fighting on every issue, whether it's supporting our early education programs, our public hospitals to a pothole that may come up or a repair that's needed uh, in our park. Uh, that's all the heart of the work that uh, I suspect that we need to do in the city council. And I'm, it's, it's been affirmed to me too, um, including most recently, you know, uh, pushing uh, to uh, to make sure the gas was restored in a building in our district on Thanksgiving that had been, out, that had been without gas, heat and hot water for many days. Um, and that leads me to my second um, lesson, which I saw as a as a housing lawyer, and I see it now too, is that we need to make sure that our government is actually being responsive on the ground to the issues that come up every single day. You know, the work really doesn't end when you pass a bill at City Hall. That's where it begins. There's far too many. What I've always said is that, you know, the laws are worth less than the paper they're written on if they're not actually enforced in reality. And I saw that as a lawyer with many tenants that were forced out of their buildings by landlords taking sledgehammers to their building, totally illegal. And now here in the city council, many times there are decisions made at the agency level, um, laws that may exist on the books, but if they're not actually being translated to serve on the ground to the individuals who are affected, who are without gas or heat or hot water, who need health care but can't get it, no matter what programs have been created by the city, uh, our city government is, is, is not working in that regard. And so really pushing to make sure our agencies and government are responsive um, is like I said before, um, it's 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 the everyday consuming work and it goes beyond what the laws may say on a piece of paper. Um, that has been, you know, I think also um, uh, both interesting to see um, and also uh, reaffirming as well. Um, and finally, just, you know, on a more personal note, too, I'm a father of two young children um, as as uh, as uh, as your parent, fellow parent yourself, Ben, you know it, too. The chaos of getting my kids to school every morning on time before the doors close. Uh, my wife is a full time uh, works full time, too, as an immigration lawyer. So it's constant chaos in our household. And that mm-hmm. chaos has only been magnified uh, by this job as well. But it's all it's all good chaos. And it means we're staying busy and doing a lot of the work. One thing I'm interested in, uh, in especially from new elected officials um, that I wanted to ask you about is you get invited to a an insane number of events. You're you're sort of expected to appear and often speak at an incredible number of events while doing your legislative work, your oversight work. There's uh, probably too many committees in the city council. You chair one of them. You're sitting on a whole bunch of others like lots of council members do. Um 
how challenging is it as a new elected official to manage your time? Um, that seems like one of the biggest challenges that um, all elected officials really have to face in a growing city. There's PTAs, there's a million advocacy groups, there's, you know, the Open Streets Project, there's all, all sorts of things going on all the time. There's memorials, there's ribbon cuttings, uh, you name it. Uh, how, how hard has that been? It's, it's, it's extraordinarily challenging, um, but you have to, I think one of the things, you know, as I mentioned before, is you have to embrace the chaos of it all, um, know that it's going to be challenging. So you don't, you know, lose yourself or lose literally sleep trying to figure it all out. I mean, the first and foremost I have, and I'm so lucky to have an incredible team um, in our office, uh, uh, almost all from the district itself. Many who are parents uh, like me of young children, um, and we speak nine different languages uh, in the office too. And so wow. they are, they always juggle, they see their role as to make sure that I'm able to get uh, as close as possible on time to each different events and make sure this calendar works and we're all, you know, uh, functioning together as an office. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, you know, I think I personally, you know, I, I try to, to to do as much as I can in, in the day. Um, and if I'm, you know, one of the things I've been doing more and more is is to fit in both physical activity too, you know, besides trying to go to play some basketball or go for a run is to walk to City Hall. I'll try to walk from Grand Central to City Hall and I'll try to fit in a bunch of phone calls then or do things then or email after my kids go to bed at night. Um, and, you know, you try to find ways to fit it all in and do as much as you can. Um, and you also have to draw clear boundaries too. You know, I think for for me, I think a lot of people already know when they reach out, and my team also says it as well. Um, there's a certain time of the day that um, more often than not, I'm just not going to be available. If that's picking up my kids from after school, um, that's going to be you know a time that I'm not going to be able to go to an event or you know Friday evenings, oftentimes or sometimes on the weekend too. Um, certain blocks of time, which I say will be with the family. Um, it's it's always a moving target, but I do think you've got to be able to both, you know, a- embrace all the, the 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 chaos of it, and also draw some clear boundaries too uh, to help make it manageable. All right, so let's talk about your work chairing the Parks Committee of the City Council. Um, before we get into sort of your five point plan for parks and the work you've done, you just chaired a oversight hearing on the capital uh, process to. <laughs> try to improve delivery of projects by the city uh, for parks in terms of uh, new parks, renovations, enhancements, all the all the different sort of types of infrastructure, construction projects, uh, whether it's the the park bathrooms that run way over uh, budget and, and take years longer than expected or a whole host of other problems with that that process. Before we get into that, uh, we'll, we'll get into that in a second. On the on this sort of bigger question of, you know, sort of learning in a first year as an elected official, as chair of the parks committee of the council, going around the city to, to different parks and, and pools and playgrounds and other things under your purview, what's something that's really jumped out at you? Uh, is, is there is there a big thing that you, that has been a bit of a surprise to you in this first year in that role? Is there, um, you know, something that 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 people wouldn't know, sort of know unless they're doing the work that you've been doing any sort of uh aha moments in this first year as a as chair of the council's parks and recreation committee yeah so taking a step back for a second i just first want to say you know i love being the uh uh parks chair in the city council um and i've loved you know being able to advocate on these issues in part because 
now we know more than ever how much how crucial um, our green spaces and parks are for for all New Yorkers. If we didn't know it before, the pandemic certainly made it clear, right, that our parks are essential for our uh, mental health, for our well being. They restore us, um, our families, um, and they're not. If there was any notion before that there's some sort of luxury or amenity, we have to reject that completely. They are essential spaces for our communities. The biggest issue, however, is, and one that I've really been laser focused on as Parks Chair, is that every community does not have equal access to green space. Um, and frankly, it's oftentimes communities of color because of decades um, of practices of systemic discrimination, um, discriminatory planning practices that have resulted in communities of color, especially uh, being deprived of green space. Uh, my neighborhood in Jackson Heights, we rank 50 out of 51 council districts when it comes to green space in New York City. In other words, we have some of the least amount of park space in all of New York. Um, yet, as I said before, we were the epicenter, the epicenter of the pandemic. So I think it is our obligation as a city um, to make sure that we are expanding access to green space for all New Yorkers, beginning with the communities that have had some of the least amount of it. Um, and that's why I was proud um, earlier this year to join my fellow members of the Parks Committee, our Borough President Donovan Richards, um, to announce our five-point um, agenda, our five-point plan for parks. Um, and we did so deliberately. Uh, we chose Flushing Meadows Corona Park to highlight the disparities between parks that have a lot of resources, conservancies that can support them, and parks like Flushing Meadows, which is our park here in Queens, but gets far less in the way of resources um, than many other big parks in New York City. Um, and some of the points on our five-point plan included fighting to make sure that we have a budget of 1% or uh, $1 billion for parks. Um, and I'm proud that and this year, uh, we fought to get the highest budget um, for the Parks Department in the history of New York City. We're still not at 1%, but I'm proud that um, in my first year, uh, I've been able to make sure that we got the biggest budget for parks in our city. Um, another part of our plan is included uh, expanding our tree canopy, planting a million trees in partnership with our borough presidents. Um, and I'm proud that, you know, back in, I think it was May or June, uh, we held as the Parks Committee the first ever hearing on the tree canopy um, in New York City and the incredibly crucial role that it plays both from a climate standpoint um, and from a public health standpoint. One of the things that stands out to me, uh, in addition to the overall inequities in green space, um, is the fact that, uh, you know, the if you look at the surface temperatures of, let's say, the South Bronx compared to the Upper West Side, you will see on average the temperatures in the summertime in the South Bronx are much higher than the Upper West Side. And that is directly a product of a much, much smaller tree canopy in the South Bronx than on the Upper West Side. And that's true across the city, too. So the crucial importance of our trees, yet again, the lack, the disparity when it comes to the tree canopy in New York City is something that really stands out to me, too. Um, and, you know, I think those are the things that I've been really focused on and I feel uh, and will continue to as a parks committee and a city council to make sure that we are treating our parks as the essential spaces they are and dedicating the resources to every community so every New Yorker lives uh, within a short walk of a park. So let's continue with your five point plan since since you gave us two of the five. Um, so 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 one is getting that parks budget uh, part of the operating budget, which is now at over one hundred billion dollars, to about one percent. That's that was there. There's been a movement uh, for for that in recent years, uh, for several years now. It was something Mayor Adams committed to during the campaign. Wasn't willing to follow through on in his first budget, but he said, you know, we're getting there and we'll we'll get there eventually. Um, 
So, so getting that, that's number one. Number two, you mentioned planting a million new trees, uh, increasing the tree canopy, especially, you know, looking at communities that don't have as much tree, tree cover. Go ahead, continue on from there. Yep. And then number three, um, is uh, establishing a parks construction authority. And what's really driving that, uh, as you referenced uh, with our hearing earlier this week, is, well, we know and our goal and our value must be to expand green space for, for all New Yorkers. A crucial part of that is to make sure that we have a capital construction process for our parks and, and playgrounds and green spaces that is far more efficient um, and far more cost effective. In other words, we have to build, if we are, to be a city that really values green space and to expand it, we have to build back faster. Um, and right now, it takes on average seven to eight years to build a park in New York City. That is unacceptably too long. Um, it is much longer than other cities in the country when it comes to building parks. Uh, and so the hearing that we had earlier this week on the uh, for our parks hearing was to um, explore the capital process when it comes to parks construction um, in our city and to really find ways to both understand it better, because I think a lot of information isn't communicated clearly to the public about why is my park taking so long to build? We as council members allocate funding for our parks to renovate them. Um, but many times, and one of the jokes is that, you know, you don't even see a park built till after you leave office because it takes too long. That's in part driven by, um, you know, the processes need to change. For example, I've been very impressed with the way the school construction authority, because it's a construction authority, utilizes what's called a design build process, um, which makes construction of schools much, much faster. I think that the parks department needs to utilize that far more often um, as a way to build more efficiently. Uh, and we've also got um, three three bills uh, that, that we heard uh, this past hearing as well. Uh, one of them uh, was on uh, working with New Yorkers for Parks, the Playfair Coalition, uh, organized labor, um, was to uh, require the Parks Department to create a strategic blueprint of how it would reduce the timeline of parks capital projects by 25%. Um, another bill uh, was to expand the Parks Department Capital Project Tracker to share much more information about the status of projects, the reason for delays, again, because transparency is essential for good government. We need to know how and why these projects are, what the time they're taking, if there are delays, why that's the case, and how we can improve them. Um, and finally, another bill um, that was a priority of Speaker Adrian Adams in the state of the city um, to require um, a number of city agencies, uh, parks, Department of Transportation, Department of Environmental Protection, to look at all the highway dead ends um, and uh, exit, exit uh, uh, entry ramps to see where we could um, expand microparks, uh, bioswells, and other green spaces in our city. So this is really a way to say we need to radically transform our capital construction process. It's 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 urgent and it's necessary. Um, and points four and five are to um, fortify and protect. Uh, the waterfronts of New York City. Our coasts, uh, our coastlines are extraordinarily important. Uh, we're a city of water surrounded by water. We need to do a far better job of protecting the coastlines um, instead of turning it over for luxury development or other things that may undermine our climate. Um, and finally, to invest in all our parks and playgrounds throughout New York City. Uh, every park and playground, every New York child um, must have access to a high quality playground uh, everywhere. And we don't always see that. For example, in NYCHA, 
you know, in addition to high prevalence of lead paint, um, arsenic, things like that, that have come up, um, the playgrounds aren't well maintained either. And so when we think about equity, it requires investing in that way as well. Um, and the, the last point I just mentioned is, you know, we've um, uh, in the city council, the first bill, in addition to the three bills that we have now that are hearing, uh, the city council passed my first bill earlier this year, um, which was to require the parks department to come up with a rating system to inspect the quality of parks and playgrounds throughout the city, assign a, uh, a, a rating to it, and then come up with a plan to actually address improving those parks and playgrounds, again, as a way of highlighting the inequities when it comes to park space and maintenance. On the, on the construction and the capital issues, what is the biggest one or two things that are causing these delays and these problems? Is it about a lack of uh, interagency coordination and the need for uh, something Mayor Adams has talked about on a number of fronts, sort of uh, intra-governmental efficiency being better? Is it uh, something else about expediting the contracting process? What what are the biggest barriers that you are thinking about coming out of this hearing or have been thinking out for longer than that? There's you know, great reports out there from the Center for an Urban Future and other places about this. But what do you what do you see as the big barriers here? Well, it's it's all the things that you mentioned from interagency communication to otherwise. But one point that fundamentally stands out to me and stood out to me um, in the hearing in our hearing earlier this week, too, um, is uh, the contracting process itself. Right now, um, if you're not using, for example, design build um, as a as a uh, practice, uh, the process from design to bidding out to a contractor, that's a very long process. There are different entities doing each of those things. The bidding process itself um, is extraordinarily time-consuming and lengthy. The contractor that comes in is going to be different from the one who's designing the space. And there may be issues there. And then there, once you have the contracting going on, there may be project delays that come up that may require change orders or other um, significant changes to the original plan that was set up. All of those things build immense delay into the process. Mm -hmm. Our capital process, not just for parks, it's really a citywide problem and we're gonna explore each of the different agencies, but our capital process is fundamentally broken in New York City. What I would love to see, um, especially, is when it comes to our, our parks department, in addition to more transparency um, about uh, the parks projects, right? Because when you come out and you walk, you step outside your front door and you walk down the street, it's your parks, your unfinished parks, your unfinished playgrounds that you see that jump out to you. New Yorkers need to know when those projects will be finished, what the timeline is. And so that transparency is essential. But in addition to that, I would love to see a much more efficient contracting process that enables many more contractors to participate in the process, um, because right now the list is is limited. It's a defined list. Use more contractors, bring them in much earlier in the process, which design build would do, for example, and expand the pool of contractors. For example, we need to be using, as far as I'm concerned, every single public works project in New York City, parks included, should be done with 100% union labor. And if we actually expand the contracting process, we can bring in more unions and organized labor as part of it too, um, and find more efficiencies there as well. So that's something that really jumped out to me in terms of the contracting process being a big reason for the delays um, in, in capital projects in the city. 
Um, do you want to create a parks construction authority? That was one of the the five bullet points, but you're you're talking about things that maybe are more changes to the current structure of things. Do you, do you want to try to replicate the school construction authority with a parks construction authority? Yes. I think that would be the most effective. Uh Um, It's, it's obviously a bigger project because it requires both um, city action. um, School construction authority is a state agency. So state coordination too. Um, And frankly, because you could have an authority that could really harness all of these different practices and tools the way the school construction authority does. I fundamentally believe a parks construction authority uh, is the answer and would do that. And in the meantime, in getting there, there are a number of other intermediate uh, reforms that we need along the way um, to help uh, pave the way for it. Mm -hmm. I'm watching... Uh, near where I live in Brooklyn, I'm watching this recreation area that's near the Prospect Park parade grounds or part of the parade grounds be redone. And it looks like it's going to be great, but it is not that big of space. And watching the slow process of each piece of the project get done has really been eye-opening to me, you know, just walking by it every day, basically, and either seeing no work done or when the next phase done, it's like they're bringing in seemingly a different contractor to do every single little piece of the project. And it's really been, you know, I, ha- I wish I had been sort of taking notes, <laughs> like doing a journal on this thing, because it's really remarkable how long something like this appears like it's taking you know, if you do, um, I mean, this can happen with any sort of renovation project of any kind, right? But typically, you know, you, 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 I don't know, renovate a house or something, you get a contractor in, that contractor is responsible for getting all those, and they're trying to do it quickly. You know, this this seems, the lack of, of urgency in the timeline here for this project seems uh, stunning to me. And I, I, that just, to me, speaks to, there's obviously the massive bureaucracy of city government, but it seems like what you're getting at is requirements to sort of just light more fire under the city government. It, it, it just seems like this way of doing business that that city government has gotten into that's hugely inefficient and, and makes people wait for, you know, neighborhood uh, necessities and amenities for, for far longer than than needed. As you pointed out, it's remarkable and it's remarkably inefficient, you know, and and to your point, that's why I began and our parks committee began focusing on the parks department, because the first thing you see, like as I said, when you step out your door or look out your window as you're doing right now, it's the parks projects that stand out to you because we all love our parks and we need access to them. We need them well maintained. These projects can't take so long to do. And so it stands out with our parks, you know, and, and people see that. Having said that, it's also a larger citywide problem with all of our projects. You know, if I were to tell you, as, as we were saying, and to your point about the, um, the the contractor analogy in your home, if I were to say that you have one team that's doing the design work on the project and another completely different team afterwards bidding, the project is bidded out and they come in to do the actual construction well, neither at that point, there's already lengthy delays, but one person who's doing the work isn't the person who's designed it. And so that in itself is going to create both communication problems and then issues that come up of changes that may have may need to happen along the way. And then if there's a process to then you have to go to fix those changes through change orders and things like that. You see what I'm getting at. It just drags the project out immensely. Yeah. I, I wonder your instance on this, because I get 
I get some of the structural delays that are in place, like some of what you're talking about. I also, you know, I also do wonder what's happened in city government on just the sort of culture and accountability front that can often be harder to sort of point to and measure on some of these things. I, you know, we have obviously lots and lots and lots of, um, you know, public servants who are doing a lot of great work and working very hard, but there seems to be these real challenges. And again, this is something Mayor Adams, I thought, hit right on the head throughout his campaign about accountability, about efficiency. What sense do you get from the Parks Department on sort of culture? Uh, Is there you know, more of a culture of accountability under the new administration? Is this something that needs a lot of improvement? Is this something you're talking uh, with the parks commissioner about? Is this not even really about the, the, it's not, maybe it's not really about the parks commissioner. Um, what, what are your, what are your thoughts on sort of the sometimes a little bit harder to sort of pinpoint and measure, but that are, that speak to sort of general um, culture and accountability? Well, I think, you know, these, these are issues that are much, broader in scope than any one current administration. They they go back, you know, years in that sense. And I want to be very clear about it. Um, the Parks Department under the leadership of, of Commissioner Sue Donahue um, has really done a phenomenal job uh, focusing on these issues and working uh, with me, uh, with the council um, to understand them and to find ways to address them. I think Commissioner Donahue um, has been incredible as a parks commissioner and really brings a wealth of experience from her own background, um, you know, uh, with Prospect Park, um, brings that knowledge and expertise to uh, to the department as well. Uh, the deputy commissioners um, as well from our, our forestry division to our capital projects uh, bring that same wealth of experience too um, and commitment uh, to really uh, find ways um, to 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 transform, whether it's the capital process or or anything anything else as well. So there's a real commitment there, and I think as we saw from the hearing too, their eagerness as well to uh, to address these issues. And taking a step back, you know, to the administration's credit as well, they've been also focused on capital reform too. You know, they've got a task force going on now to address these issues. There are things that agencies like the Department of Design and Construction or DDC have piloted. Like when I mentioned changing the projects later, creating a a work allowance as part of funding, so you don't have to for unanticipated costs and changes that come up, and seeing if other agencies like parks can utilize that too. And I asked about that at my hearing. So there is a commitment um, from everyone to address it. It's just that the problem is just so much bigger, stretching back decades, that we need all of these all actors involved: the administration, including the parks department, the city council has a role too. So, uh, but I've been really excited to work with the parks department uh whether it's on this issue uh, our tree canopy our parks budget um it's been um it's it, it's been great to work together uh, under commissioner donahue's leadership under the um november budget modification that the mayor presented so what what is that parks department operating budget at now what what is that record level of funding where where did where did that get to uh it's about uh i want to say 640 million, give or take, mm-hmm. the kind of 30 million, you have to call me right, right around there. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, understanding that a billion, you know, it, it's, it's somewhat, um, somewhat symbolic because it's the 1% for parks, right? It's 1% of whatever the budget should go to parks is the, is the sort of working theory there. Um, but let's, let's call that the goal. Um, and obviously <laughs> there's plenty of, 
um, you know, uh, efforts related to parks and uh, hiring that could be done and programming that could be done in the operating budget, because we obviously are talking sometimes about the capital process here and then operating uh, budget separately. Um, a, a lot of uses for that additional money, but that that would be a significant increase from, you know, 600 some odd uh, million to the billion um, how do you how do you see reaching that goal? Is that a two two more years in your mind? Is that something that you know again remains a nice goal, but you're not necessarily thinking about a timeline. You want to just continue to add resources to parks. How are you thinking about sort of bridging that gap between the stated goal, which the mayor has also promised and stated, versus you know where the budget is at right now? Oh, it's it should have happened yesterday. Um, it should have happened in the last budget. Um, and uh, Parks Advocates uh, and I will continue uh, being loud and clear about the need for it to happen uh, right away in this budget coming up. The fact of the matter is that we are investing far less in our parks than many other major cities throughout our country. Um, and that's not acceptable. It, it's not radical to have a budget that reflects 1% uh for parks. Many other cities, many other big cities do it too. So so so, you know. so if you if you had 350 let's say million dollars more for parks, you know, tomorrow, what 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 are the biggest areas what that's what what's that beefing up? Well, I would say our parks workers are the beating heart of our park system. And I was proud by the way that this budget for parks was fundamentally a workers budget. We created 715 new permanent positions, saved a lot of temporary park workers lines that were going to expire. The, the faces of so many parks workers are seared in my head who came to me, uh, seared in my mind who came to me during the budget process saying, we're so afraid of losing our jobs. Um, can you fight for us? And so I was proud that we were able to do so in this budget, but I would say we need to do far more to protect our parks workers. And with funding like that, you could really create dedicated, more permanent positions in our parks departments. You could allocate more money for maintenance throughout our parks. One of the biggest things is we create these green spaces. We have to put the funding aside to maintain them. And as I mentioned before, some parks have large conservancies and are able to do so. Many parks, like in neighborhoods like mine, don't have that ability. And we need much more funding for maintaining our green spaces. So I would say those are the two things for our workers uh, and for maintenance services. Mm -hmm. In terms of more creating more smaller parks, um, in terms of creating more open space, maybe it's not green space, maybe it's more like open streets. There's obviously ways to you know, bring a little green into into the streetscape. But um, what are what are a couple of your priorities that you might be able to advance in 2023 in terms of whether they're legislative, they're budgetary? Um, what are you looking at in terms of enhancing, um, you know, New Yorkers ability to access whether it's park space or open space of, of other kinds? You've obviously been a proponent of the open streets program, um, you know, with the marquee one in, in your district. What are some things you're looking at to be able to expand some of that access? You know, a lot of times we're talking about, um, you know, larger parks and, and you know, people have uh, Central Park, Prospect Park, et cetera, in their in their heads. But um, the smaller park access, open streets, other programs, public plazas, you know, are, are um, uh, often a, a focus in some communities in Queens like yours. Yep. What are you looking at in terms of uh, expanding access to these types of public open space? Well, I just start off by saying that if we are to expand green space in the city, we have to be really creative and ambitious in the ways that we're doing so. We have to create 
public space, green space, where it hasn't existed before. And as, again, we're behind many other global cities in doing so. And that's where I've been really proud to advocate alongside my community for 34th Avenue Open Street. I mean, it's beloved open street in our community, started during the pandemic, 30 blocks long, spans the entire length of my council district. And I may be biased, but I think it is true. It is the best open street in all of New York City. You walk down during the mornings, you'll see children like my own running to get to school um, at dismissal time, the same thing, dance classes, um, cultural performances, or seniors just uh, socializing. And, you know, that came from really this notion of one, we have to make our streets safer for pedestrians. Um, since the creation of 34th Avenue Open Street, as the DOT Commissioner Rodriguez and I announced recently, there's been a 41.7% reduction in crashes with pedestrians on 34th Avenue. That is remarkable. And that's for, for a neighborhood where we've seen um, 16 uh, fatalities uh, from children to seniors alone over the last 10 years. So, on top of that, it's making our public spaces more accessible. As you mentioned, we've got Diversity Plaza um, in, in Jackson Heights, too, in addition to 34th Avenue Open Street. Uh, it's the, the success story of 34th Avenue, I think, is something that we as a city need to look carefully at um, and think about at a much broader level. How are we going to create more beloved open spaces and uh, and green spaces where they haven't existed before. Uh, 34th Avenue was that, right? It was, um, we started during the pandemic and now it's, it's bloomed into something much more successful that we're fighting to make a linear park. Um, and I just think that kind of lens needs to be brought to the communities that need it and where the support is there for it. Um, you know, it's it requires both prioritizing pedestrian uh, safety, uh, safe streets um, and open space. And I think that that's where, you know, our legislation and the council, whether it's uh, the bills that we heard this week, for example, on creating more micro, micro parks um, in our city um, is really important because we're going to be looking at some of these spaces um, like like a highway uh, exit and off ramps um, and things like that, that are unused spaces, but that we could turn into micro parks, expand the tree canopy. Um, those are the kinds of things that we need to be doing. Hmm. We're in our last couple of minutes here uh, with City Council Member Shaker Krishnan, Chair of the Parks Committee in the New York City Council. Um, speaking of of all that, wh where are you on the on the Queensway versus Queens Link debate? The mayor, uh, this is a, an abandoned uh, rail line that uh, stretches in a, a few miles in Queens. Um, uh, the mayor announced uh, 35-ish million dollars for uh, a section of it to become a park. There's a lot of push for the MTA to really do a study about bringing rail service back to the line in some way. Uh, there's people like Borough President Donovan Richards who really wants to get that study done, he says, and, and push you know that ahead to see about feasibility there. What's your stance on that as Parks Commissioner? Well, as Parks Chair? I'm uh, sorry, Parks Chair. <laughs> well, I think- Not giving you, know, you a new job today. <laughs> I have to get the current one. Uh, but look, as I said before, we've got to be expanding um, green space uh, and green ways throughout our city. And I think that, you know, the, green, the Queen's Way presents such an opportunity. Um, and I think there are also, um, as, as, as you mentioned, there are those who care deeply about um, uh, public transportation, expanding accessibility transportation. I don't think those things should be in tension with each other. And I think there's got to be a way to find it working with the council members whose districts um, uh, uh, include 
uh, uh, the proposed areas to find a way to bring everyone together around a plan that um, that addresses those issues. You know, I think we've got to both um, expand. Is it, isn't that what the Queens Link does? I mean, that that's what you know. That's that's their pitch is that it's it's green, open space, but also you know transit. It's, you know, I think there's, um, I, and I also want to talk more carefully with all the advocates about it too, and really work with the council members whose districts it is around where where they believe the issues are and how to address them too. Um, I do think just as a value, we have to be expanding greenways um, throughout our city. You know, we recently, you know, have um, um, passed legislation in the council to expand the greenway master plan throughout New York City. Um, and I think this is all a part of it too. Um, th- that The Queensway presents a unique opportunity to do so. So what I'd love to see is a way for everyone to come together around both expanding greenway access and also expanding public transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been vocal about wanting to see um, the city uh, terminate its contract with the Trump organization. Uh, this relates to the license at Ferry Point Park. What um, what's the status of that? You held a hearing on this. Um, you know the Trump the Trump organization uh, has now uh, just been convicted on a, of a series of tax fraud and other crimes uh, in a case brought by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. So that's pretty fresh news that applies here. What's um, what what do you think should and and can actually happen there, and on what timeline? I want to be very clear about this, um, so there's no debate here. That contract, that license is as clear as day that the parks commissioner can terminate it immediately. It was true back in September when we held our hearing. It is even truer now um, after the after the um, uh, the conviction as well. And so, as far as I'm concerned, park public parkland. Let's be very clear: we're talking about here. Public parkland should not be in the hands of Donald Trump or his criminal enterprise. Uh, I have looked through that license very carefully. The former president of the New York State Bar Association, Stephen Younger, testified at our hearing about the different ways and methods of terminating this license. If there is a will to do it, it can be done right now. And the Parks Commissioner and Mayor Adams should be doing exactly that. Why aren't they? Your guess is as good as mine. I have no Uh clue. It's really, at this point, uh, it's it's it was unacceptable long before for Donald Trump and the Trump Organization to have uh, to have this public parkland. Uh, but now, after after all of this, um, it's it's even more urgent. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right. Lastly, I uh, just got to throw in a question on this, because, as I said in the introduction um, and, and housing has been a, a focus for you um, in, in different ways in the past. I want to spend most of our time as we did here on on parks, but um, and open space. But um on the issue of housing, you know, there's been a lot of debate here um, about how much does New York City need to build versus, um, you know, tenant protections versus uh, ensuring that uh, vacant units come back into service. There's lots of people who say all of the above, but there's always tension, you know, in these discussions. As a city council member, you get to, of course, um, have a lot of say, if not uh, veto or approval power over rezonings in your district. Uh, The mayor is releasing plans, has released plans this week that he says will uh, accelerate the development process. He's now set a goal of of creating 500,000 new housing units over the next decade. Governor Hochul is making this a priority. Um, What are you, you know, just just in, in brief and in general, what are you thinking about on this topic of ensuring that there's more affordable housing in the city 
that there's enough housing development to meet demand. Um, what, what's your perspective on this? Is there anything that you think is missing from the discussion from your experience? How are you thinking about this for your district? Just a few parting thoughts for us on how you're thinking about these these huge housing questions that sure. people are reckoning with. Well, I think we've got to first recognize that everyone needs a roof over their head uh, and a pillow to sleep on at night. Housing is a human right in that sense, and it has to be treated that way. The biggest issue we've had is that decades of uh, planning policies that favored developers and real estate undermined rent stabilization laws um, and forced tenants out of their homes due to displacement and uh, luxury overdevelopment. We've got to undo all of that. And so the first thing I would say is we need a massive investment uh, of public resources and public dollars to support the creation of truly affordable housing. The, the fact of the matter is relying on the private market and private developers alone to generate affordable housing uh, is not going to work. They have their bottom lines and the housing built, as we've seen over decades now, is not always going to be affordable to the communities that it's in. We need to have much more government support behind it to actually build housing that, again, is affordable to the communities that it's in. One of the things that's been missing in all the patchwork, and I, and again, this is a conversation that many of us in the housing movement have had for years. And in some ways, I'm glad that it's that it's in many ways, I'm glad it's 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 being discussed now, but also it's been missing for for so many years too. One of the things is in the patchwork of development and rezoning projects and all this kind of stuff is we're not taking a step back and looking at how can we think at a much larger level about our housing policies, our planning policies. Um, and I say that as, you know, my first case out of law school, which lasted 12 years, was the Broadway Triangle litigation against the city of New York over a rezoning that violated the Fair Housing Act. And what we showed um, in there, um, and it, it turned later into a legislation in the council about the racial impact study, is that the city has an obligation to affirmatively further fair housing when it builds. Um, that's not to avoid segregation, that's actually furthering fair housing. And it requires the city or any municipality to really study what are the patterns of development, what are the patterns of um, demographics and, and residential segregation existing in a neighborhood, and how can housing policy, how can proposed projects uh, undo that and further fair housing? We need that kind of larger analysis to the projects to understand how they fit into the broader communities in terms of affordability and need and the broader citywide um, uh, uh, breakdown of housing too. And I think that piece is a crucial piece of the conversation, um, tracking fair housing laws that we need to. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that opened up a whole avenue that we could spend lots more time on. <laughs> I'm going to bite my tongue here and not even not even ask one follow up question on that because we I, <laughs> I've taken up enough of your time, but I really appreciate it. Uh, City Council Member Shaker Krishnan represents District 25 in Queens, including Jackson Heights and Elmhurst. He's been in office now nearly a year after winning election 2021. He's a Democrat. He is chair of the City Council's committee on parks and recreation. And that's what we focused on in most of this discussion here. So uh, I'll have you back in 2023. We'll touch on some park stuff and then we'll get into more on housing and other things. How about that? That sounds great. I'm looking forward to be back again, Ben. Thanks so much for the invitation. Um, and uh, I guess I'll see you in 2023. Or talk All to right. You. Thank, thanks for chatting. Be well. Happy holidays uh, and, and good luck with the work ahead. You too. Thanks so much, Ben. <laughs>